You're listening to the Homestead Gardening for the Texas Gulf Coast podcast with Kristen Howard. Today is all about introducing you to composting. In this episode, I'll discuss what you can and can't compost, as well as types of compost you can purchase for your garden. I'll even give outdoor pests a quick mention. Next week, we'll take what you learned in today's episode and go a step further when we discuss different composting methods, cost comparisons on composting setups, and we'll even talk pros and cons of using earthworms. I never thought I would compost. My experiences with people that did compost described it as difficult, expensive, and really smelly. In 2009, when I lived in a Dallas suburban neighborhood, I toured several of the demonstration gardens in the area featuring composting. And when I look back, I realized the problems with these demonstration gardens is that they were maintained by volunteer organizations, and some of the projects like the composting station were not managed more than once a month. This is probably why I had such a negative impression about composting. Smelly compost was not an option where I lived, and purchasing a really expensive turning composter to mask the smell wasn't either. I couldn't justify the costs and difficulty of composting when I could just go buy finished compost for less money and less effort. Flash forward a few years later to me moving to Northwest Houston, building a vegetable garden on wide open acreage, adding a huge flock of birds and four short time goats. Now, I had acclimated to the smelliest of smelly things with these animated animal additions and composting was the obvious next big project. Unfortunately, the pests that came with those fun extras were already too gross and multiplying too quickly, and a small compost area was offering another home and food source for roaches and rats. Now, before you get grossed out, roaches and rats are actually nocturnal, and I rarely saw them. However, whether or not I owned birds or goats, or a garden, or a compost pile, those pests were already there before I came onto the scene and they're still going to be there long after I'm gone. You're probably thinking that my chicken coop and the straw for the goats was just offering more homes for these pests. However, the ducks and goats really hated bugs in their area, and especially rodents. When you see a chicken eating a bug, it's not really because they are free-ranging and hungry. That bug is just a smaller, weaker competitor. These pests were a threat to the bird's food, They were a threat to their eggs, and birds fiercely defend all of their things from anything that might compete with them. And if you've seen a pecking order in action, you know exactly what I'm talking about. On another note, a pecking order is a real thing, and if you have a large flock with many different types of birds, I guarantee you a male turkey will be the lowest in the pecking order. You could have a chicken with one wing, and the male turkey will still be the lowest in the pecking order. But back to my point, the gross flock wasn't really adding to my pest problem like you would think. In fact, two of my broody ducks trying to hatch eggs were so angry when they found a nest of baby mice that they swallowed them whole. The ducks and goats were gross and messy in their own ways, but they really liked it when I picked up after them and kept their area clean. So those animals weren't as much of a problem as me making silly mistakes like leaving the chicken feed out at night or storing extra bags of food in an area that the pests could sneak into. And these pests can flatten themselves out and sneak into anything. But having a compost area available combined with having natural weed problems, with weeds growing up close enough to the compost area that I couldn't properly maintain and police for the rat tunnels was more of the issue. 
So why am I talking about pests instead of how to compost without getting pests? Because the truth is, you're going to have pests in your garden, whether you compost or not, and you will have them in the compost pile too. The point is, you had them there the whole time. Now that you are properly mentally prepared for the reality of the great outdoors, let's dive into the fun stuff. The question I should have been asking myself for years is, why am I letting vegetable trash and other stinky food trash rot in my home, but I'm too afraid to let it rot outdoors where it belongs? It's time for you to get excited about reducing the amount of stinky garbage you have in your home trash can. It's truly easier and quicker to talk about what you can't compost than what you can compost. So let's start with the no-no list. Not everything should be composted in your home composter. Many of the things on the no-no list will still get broken down outdoors. And by all means, if you have a place far, far away from humans, have a separate no-no compost area. But it comes with a heavy cost. Usually, really, really rancid smells, maggots, and larger pests like raccoons. So, what should you avoid composting for a typical cute home garden? For a lot of people, the first group of items on the no-no list aren't as obvious as they seem. Meat, dairy, eggs, and fats or oils will wreak havoc on your pile, stink, and attract rodents. However, I will take broken eggshells, microwave them for a few seconds to kill bacteria, and then Grind them up in a food processor to add to my compost pile. This is perfectly fine. And if you have chickens, you can actually add this into their feed if for some reason they're nutrient deficient. No sugar, grains, or carbs should be in your compost pile because all of this just converts to sugar and that will feed bad bacteria and attract rodents as well. Wet grains also smell super bad. Keep that in mind if you decide to add chickens to your homestead because humidity or rain can rot the feed if you don't keep the area clean. Most gardeners just say no to onion and garlic in the compost bin. Others like to live life a little dangerously. And maybe those people are super cool, but they're probably not going to get rich compost out of their endeavor. In a future podcast episode, I'm going to discuss companion planting in more detail. But this is basically a technique where I use certain plants like onion and garlic planted in areas of the garden next to other companion plants, which help to ward off pests and keep them from snacking on my greens instead of using chemical pest control. It's a great way to save money, but when it comes to composting, they aren't very effective. Microorganisms are essential in the compost pile, and the last thing we want to do is deter our hard workers from making the compost for us. Basically, this is not the time to be a rebel, so keep those onions and garlic skins out of the compost bin. Another iffy item is citrus. Many people think citrus are perfectly fine to compost, but the issue is similar to that onion and garlic problem. Citrus can be used to deter pests, and therefore we don't want to deter the beneficial insects that are helping us break down the compost. In fact, citrus oils can be used as cleaners, and they can actually repel or kill ants in the garden and used as an organic pest control method. So instead, consider soaking the citrus peels and using them as targeted pest control to recycle them instead of compost them. Another issue with citrus is that they don't break down very quickly. Now in Houston, 
citrus do rot and they actually do break down a lot faster than in other areas. For example, when my husband was overseas, he was in a desert climate and they were able to leave citrus out in the heat, in the sun for months without anything happening to it. That's just the way it was. In Houston, the fruit tends to rot on the trees. We're very humid. We're very bug prone. But because of the reason I gave before, not wanting to reduce the beneficial insects in the compost pile, it's best that you leave them out. Let's discuss your morning cup of joe. Real quick question. What would the nickname for tea be? I Google searched if coffee is called joe what is tea called? And I didn't find an answer, so I guess it's up to me to decide. <clears throat> so let's discuss your morning cup of Joe or Terry. Okay, anyways, uh, if you make your own coffee or tea with a reusable filter instead of the pods or bags, then by all means, compost those grounds and leaves. You can even reserve coffee grounds, particularly for your acid-loving plants, like azaleas, hydrangeas, blueberries, lilies, and so on. If you want to be super crazy, which I absolutely am, you can call up your local coffee shop or coffee kiosk and find out if they toss their grounds out in a separate container from their other trash. They usually do, with the exception of maybe a napkin or two, and you can request a regular pickup of their coffee grounds. Even a small one or two window drive up coffee kiosk will probably have five gallons of coffee grounds ready for you to pick up three times a week. And honestly, if you're already driving, buy a place like that every day to work, why not try it out? If you think it's weird to call and ask, trust me, it's not. When I called, they told me they used to have someone pick up grounds regularly a few months before me, and that person hasn't come by in a little while. So they really weren't surprised or bothered by me asking. Although those items are on the yes list, the coffee cups, filters, tea bags, and plastic coffee pods that go with coffee and tea usually are on the no list, or they need to be located somewhere else besides your organic compost area. If it's not obvious, it should become obvious later in this episode, but basically, if you aren't 100% sure something is organic, then you can't be sure it will make organic compost for your organic vegetable garden. Also, it's not really fun finding metal staples from tea bags in the finished compost. If it's not already obvious, Plastics don't belong in the organic compost area because they are not organic. Compost does heat up, and chemicals from plastics can leach into the soil. So although you can dig out missed plastic after the compost is finished, you won't know the extent the compost was contaminated. If your plastic footprint is bothering you, let me let you in on a really big secret, while simultaneously giving a quick shout out to the Houston area local farmers. You can use your computer or your phone to search for farms and navigate around your local area in the map section, especially in Houston and the surrounding suburbs. Here you're going to find homesteads and farms offering vegetables, fruit, meat, eggs, dairy, farm animals for sale, places to buy your holiday trees or pumpkins, and even local growers for garden and front yard plants. Because these locations sell directly to consumers, the prices, at least in my opinion, have been the same as prices found in the grocery store. The food tastes better, and usually they don't have a ton of plastic that they use to bag up the food or silly food stickers to tell the cashier which food they're ringing up for you. 
And while I'm on my little plastic bandwagon, in case you didn't know, reusable grocery sacks are usually made of plastic as well. But you can buy rice in reusable burlap sacks and reuse these sacks to carry your groceries or in-store purchases. You can even make your own burlap grocery sacks. Bottom line is, the material's compostable, and this is an episode on composting. For a long time, I was under the impression that cardboard and paperboard were recyclable. Up until about a year ago, I was also under the impression that cardboard and paperboard were compostable in the organic compost pile. So let's talk about them for a minute. Cardboard is usually what your Amazon boxes are made of, and these are usually recyclable. But paperboard is what your soda can or cereal boxes are made of, and these are usually not recyclable. However, most people will add these to the recycling bin and feel really awesome about being part of the recycling effort. When in reality, these paperboard items are thrown into the trash once they get to the recycling center. Sorry, I really feel like somebody had to tell you. I don't have an issue composting any of these items. They are compostable. They don't smell. They don't attract creatures. But if we are trying to compost for an organic vegetable garden or anything that's edible, whether you're attempting organic or not, you should be extremely picky about what you put in your compost bin because even the paperboard can include unknown chemicals in the processing and the inking, which is probably why they aren't even on the list of recyclables. Instead, I have a different method that I think you will love for these paper products. And I'll discuss that method further in episode three when we discuss alternative compost methods. So we mainly talked about kind of kitchen and home items that are compostable. But other outdoor living things can be composted as well, provided that they were not A, treated with chemicals by humans, such as treated lumber, or even lawn trimmings where you regularly add a pest or weed prevention. B, have a disease or infection already present on the plant, such as trimmings from your vegetables or rose gardens, due to you removing infection from that plant. This is especially true for tomatoes. C, invasives, such as weeds. D, plants that are toxic, such as pecan or walnut leaves, oleander leaves, things like that. And E, animal or human waste. Now I feel like I have to say that, and I wish I didn't feel like I have to say that, but you'd be surprised. You will see chicken manure, horse manure, etc. for sale for vegetable garden use. And I caution buying this from a source you don't know, but you can use these manures if they are aged before they're sold. You don't want to use a non-aged manure for many reasons. One being pathogens that the animal might have, and the other one is that until it is aged, it's not really going to be useful for the plants anyways. If you have a friend that will let you scoop out their stall or, or chicken coop, just make sure that you have an area set aside so you can have this fresh manure age over time. You can find out how long it takes for a particular manure to age online. Now, I've had a surprising number of people ask me why I don't have a cat. And especially after you've heard the podcast intro talking about mice and rats, you're going to ask this question as well. Lots of gardeners do have cats. But I personally don't have any interest or tolerance for an animal using my garden as a litter box or lounging in my lettuce. And this is a problem most gardeners have that have cats. Instead, I have dogs that are not allowed in my fenced garden because they do the exact same thing as cats do, but they're scary enough to keep the cats out of the yard. 
I figured I'd mention pets because sometimes you don't know that you have remains in your vegetable garden. But if you have pets, it's definitely an option for you. So after the long list of no's, what can you compost? Let's assume that anything else organic that is not on the no-no list would be on the yes list. For example, raw vegetable scraps, cooked steamed vegetables that were not prepared with salt or oil, but maybe you left them in the back of the fridge too long and they went bad, any water used in boiling or steaming those vegetables that, again, did not include salt or oil, other non-citrus raw fruit, cores and peels, other non-onion raw vegetables that are starting to go bad on the counter or in the fridge, and anything else you can imagine along these lines. I mentioned the plants that you cannot use leaves from, but other leaves, like oak leaves, create great leaf mold compost. I have many oak trees on my property, but I still have to buy this compost for myself because even though all of those trees raked up equals about three cubic yards of leaves, they only compost in about nine square feet of a few inches. And this will only feed maybe one of my mini vegetable beds for a year. I like to mention this because if I'm doing a podcast on composting, I may give the impression that I make all of the compost that I need for an entire year on my property. It's actually really difficult to do when I have so many vegetable beds, so many fruit trees. I have a rose garden, a full front yard of plants. That's a real challenge. So I do purchase compost. If you personally are not into making your own compost or you don't have the resources to make enough of your own compost for all of your plants for an entire year, purchasing compost is a great option. Whether you're purchasing a leaf mold compost or an aged manure, keep in mind that all of these composts need to be aged the proper number of months or even years depending on the animal in order to be effective. Another type of compost that I haven't mentioned is mushroom compost. And some vegetable gardeners swear by this as the only compost you should use. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with other compost. They just really like it. I personally have never used this. It's really pricey in my opinion. But the real problem I found is that it's difficult to find a trusted vendor. And you sort of need to know somebody that's already tried the vendor out in order to buy the product, so I'm just not interested in putting in that much effort. The biggest, bigger issue with composting is that it does take time to break down the materials, and if a vendor does not have enough aged compost to sell, then the supply will not meet the demand. Unlike the lumber industry, the soil gravel compost industry doesn't fluctuate their pricing to match a supply and demand issue like those other product industries. Those in their industries can manufacture slower or quicker to increase the production of products. However, if a vendor runs out of compost, that means they won't have supply again until the compost is aged a sufficient amount of time, and this could be a full year. There's really no quickening that process. And this actually happened in 2021 after the Texas freeze. The quality vendors were completely sold out by landscape installation companies in the Houston area because they had a high demand for new plant installations all in those same few months of spring. The compost vendors had only prepared for a typical demand for this season and could not possibly have anticipated 
the high demand. Additionally, it's not likely this demand will occur again in 2022, so it's not likely that their supply will change because the demand for 2021 was a one-time issue. I'd really love to applaud these vendors because they did not change their price considerably to allow the person with the most purchasing power to get the available supply and take advantage of that demand, which is what happened with all the other industries related to construction. They honored their original agreements with the landscape contractors, or at least that's what I heard from the contractors that I worked with. Because unusual hiccups can occur like this, it's always a good idea to be as self-reliant as possible And if you do have the means and opportunity to begin composting, I highly encourage that, even if you still have to supplement by purchasing some of your compost. I hope you enjoyed today's introduction to composting and have a better understanding of not only what you can and can't compost, but also why certain items are on the no-no list. If my pest stories didn't scare you away from getting started, spend the next week changing your habits and collecting your compostable items To get ready for next week's episode, where I'll take what you've already learned and go a step further when we discuss different composting methods, cost comparisons on composting setups, and we'll even talk pros and cons of using earthworms. As a reminder, weekly podcasts will be released with episodes covering garden topics in detail, and short corresponding episodes will be on my YouTube channel. You can also read a blog post summary each week. For a daily dose of gardening and to see what's growing on now in the test garden, follow me on Instagram. You can find all of this information in the podcast description. And in case you were wondering, this episode is brought to you by my real job. As a landscape designer and the owner of HTG Landscape Design, I've had the privilege of working with a wide range of clients and properties in the Houston area for nearly a decade. If you're interested in having a beautiful outdoor living and pool area, landscape, or edible garden, and you don't know how to turn your ideas into reality, consider using professional design services. Design, consultation, and even educational services are available on my website, and you can find all of this information in the podcast description as well. Thanks so much for learning with me. Next time, plan to grab your gloves, pull on your boots, and meet me in the garden to get reinvigorated each week as I introduce you to new ideas and interesting plant selections just for you. 